everyone. Let's get started. So I am absolutely delighted to be able to welcome uh, the latest speaker in our series on Iraq, uh, the anniversary 20 years after the ill-fated invasion. I am delighted to be able to introduce my friend and colleague, uh, Thomas Heckhammer. Thomas is a senior research fellow at All Souls College here in Oxford. He is a prolific author specializing in forms of political violence with a particular focus on jihadi movements. Uh, I think it's fair to say that there is some legitimate skepticism around the study of jihadi movements in Middle Eastern studies for very good reason. Thomas, I think, makes them all look really good uh, by comparison. He is a brilliant, brilliant scholar. He has authored many books and many articles, the most recent, The Caravan, Abdullah Azen, and The Rise of Global Jihad. I read this cover to cover during lockdown. It's an excellent, uh, excellent story around the rise of what becomes Al-Qaeda. Thomas is distinct both for uh, working extensively uh, with Arabic language uh, source material, but also uh, increasingly is pioneering the use of computational techniques, tools from uh, data science, from computational social science, uh, and the digital humanities. Uh, he's not just a scholar, he's also creating resources for all of us to use. I'm really, really excited about the talk tonight. I think we're gonna hear a little bit, uh, we're gonna hear about some data uh, looking at uh, the effects of the invasion occupation of Iraq, and the rise of jihadi movements. Thomas, what was yours? Thank you very much, Neil. You've got your way to your time. I'm thrilled to be here and to talk about the Iraq invasion. Now, I was invited to, to say something about Iraq. And the problem is that I, I don't work on Iraq, which will probably become eminently clear in the Q&A. However, Iraq has loomed very large in my kind of broader of interest, that of, kind of tra transnational jihadism. I started working on this right before 9-11. I followed the, kind of the whole war on terror afterward. And the time around and right after the Iraq war was a very, very momentous one. And so I, I, I remember kind of following the, all the activity on various kind of jihadi forums, etc., very, very much up close. Never really took the time to go back and look at the overall picture. It was clear that it generated a lot of activity, but not exactly kind of how much and, and, and where. So you will be forgiven for thinking, <laughs> but, you know, from looking at the, um, at the headline that I am kicking a dead horse in this talk. <laughs> um, and by the way, this, I don't think it, this is an actual dead horse. You know, it, it's, a, it's from a theater play, so it's a play. Um, you, you can also get the impression that it's common knowledge and it's kind of solidly understood that the Iraq war was sort of bad for the rise of jihadism. To double check this, I did work, you know, every good student should do now, which is ask ChatGPT, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it gives a very clear, clear answer. And this is, I suppose, is the textbook answer to my, to my question. And it comes, of course, from a series of studies addressing this question from various angles. The late Ruben Paz was one of the first to write about this, focusing main, mainly on kind of the, 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 the qualitative changes in jihadi propaganda coming out of the Iraq war. That most sort of jihadi ideologues and propaganda producers were now you know, promoting that conflict. I did some early work looking at jihadi forums, also kind of pointing out that you know, this, this is the dominant topic there. My, my colleague Petter Nesser at FFI 
wrote an early study basically doing kind of process tracing of the motivations of European jihadists showing that Iraq pops up as a, as a, as a central motivation for several plotters and attackers there. The most important influential piece though was probably the one written by Peter Bergen and Paul Cruikshank in, in 2007. Basically a Mother, Mother Jones article, but it was immensely influential in, in the Beltway and beyond in kind of establishing the understanding that from a, from a kind of counter-terrorism perspective, the Iraq war had been, had been very kind of counterproductive. And Daniel Byman and Ken Pollack uh, did something similar a little afterwards, projecting this way kind of further into the future, saying it will have very long-term effects. The only kind of slightly dissenting voice in this uh, literature is in, in an article by Martin Harrow, but I, I don't think it's... Uh, uh, it's a slightly kind of more speculative piece, and I don't think he, um, his arguments were, were widely accepted. So, so the bottom line is that everyone's kind of agreed that the Iraq war was that terrible. So why then look back on it? Well, if you look at the dates here, these are all, all these studies were done uh, in the late 2000s, and if you subtract the year of change, they were probably done even earlier, at a time when we, when we didn't have the full picture, and when available data was weaker. So for example, the data that Peter Berg and Cruikshank used in their pieces really quite weak by kind of modern modern standards. And the, the, something like the global terrorism database didn't exist at the time and so on and so forth. So I think it's worth, I mean, it's generally true, I'm a big believer in kind of going back and checking that we have got historiography right. Too often we kind of, we, we, we finish a story and then we move on to the next, the next thing. So it's worth checking you know, whether <laughs> this claim is actually true. And even if it is, it turns out to be in line with what we believed before, it's not necessarily uh, the case that uh, the, kind of the effects are, are known. So we, we, know that, we may know that it had a negative effect. We don't know by how much or how bad <laughs> was, the, was the Iraq war. And last, perhaps most importantly, we don't necessarily know why the Iraq war was so bad. What are you know, the mechanisms? And here, I, I'm probably not going to provide the full answers on the mechanisms and questions, but I would like to get us thinking about them because, you know, much as we all sort of may d dislike the <laughs> you know, U.S. imperialism in the Middle East, it's not. When you think about it, it's not necessarily a given that a big invasion will cause a, a global sort of wave of terrorism. You need only look to Ukraine today. We have like a blatant, clear sort of uh, violation of international law. Uh, superpower causing a lot of lot of harm on the ground. And we don't have a we don't have <laughs> terrorist attacks all around the world as a consequence. So what was it about the particular constellation of factors in two thousand and three that created problems we saw in the So before moving on I just want to stress that <coughs> some limitations here. I'm looking at transnational jihadism. I'm looking at what a bunch of kind of relatively small rebel groups around the world did in response to this. I'm not looking at the full effects of the war, humanitarian, uh, economic, geopolitical, etc. That's a much bigger question. And, and of course, uh, certainly the, 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 the consequences were much more, uh, much more, more severe. I'm also, also want to stress that I'm focusing, trying to focus mainly on kind of the transnational uh, dimension of things here, as opposed to militancy in Iraq proper. Because, I mean, that, the smallest mystery here is that you had violence in Iraq after an invasion. 
several of the early pieces that I showed you before use you know, data from Iran primarily to, to make the case that this was bad for international intelligence. But I think we also have to look at, at stuff outside of, of Iran. So very, very quick recap of the, the events. I don't know if this is visible even on this uh, screen. So I have had two timelines, one for like, the run-up to the Iraq war and the, the Iraq war itself. So basically, extremely simply, it's a story that kind of begins with Saddam's invasion of, or annexation of Kuwait, which worries the US and the international community because it poses a threat to the stability of oil supply in, in the Gulf and to the security of Israel. And this becomes a, a big issue in, in, in the newest politics in particular and from in the course of the 1990s, there's momentum towards pushing for, for regime change in Iraq. In 1998, you have the Iraq Liberation Act, which makes it formal US policy to, to work for regime change in Iraq. Then you have 9-11, of course, which uh, is, a, is a great shock to the, to the US and, and, and international system. And in, in the US politics in particular, this becomes, it adds to the earlier concerns about what bad things Iraq may do in, in the region. And the worry here, of course, is that there might be an alliance between Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein, and that they can carry out a, an attack on the US with biological weapons or chemical weapons. And then you have you know, a bunch of like, a sequence of events in 2000, 2001 to 2003. Almost immediately after 9-11, Bush orders are thinking up of the Pentagon's war plans. You have the Axis of Evil speech. Uh, you have the various addresses at the UN. And, most of this is, as we, know, we now know, was kind of predetermined. The, the, the US Bush administration had already decided uh, to go to war. So once the war is started, it basically kind of it takes a kind of, a, in, in terms of uh, conflict, in severity, follows kind of pyramid shape, where it kind of, initially things go fairly smoothly, relatively few casualties, but then in, in the matter of a year or two, a very, very intense insurgency builds up in Iraq. And you get also kind of horizontal conflict dynamics in the form of kind of severe sectarian violence, etc. And by 2006, 2007, the Defense Department basically feels things are going completely out of control and order the so-called uh, surge, which is a, a kind of massive increase in the military presence. And this combined with internal developments in, in Iraq and a, a change of size and by, by, by key tribes in, in, in Anbar province are able to kind of to suppress the worst part of the insurgency. And by the end, towards the end of the decade, the US very simply put kind of feels that it feels safe enough to, to leave. And by August or September 2010, the, 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 the mission is officially ended. And before this, we have a, what I refer to as a transnational jihadi movement. Don't want to spend too much time on this, but we, there's always a kind of room to discuss exactly what the sort of jihadi movement is, especially in the in the 90s and early 2000s. But broadly speaking, there's a process of kind of transnationalization and an increasing connectedness between various Islamist militant groups in across the Muslim world, and it's it helped by Afghanistan, which becomes a place where people can, can meet. In the 90s, it was helped by Technology, uh, it becomes easier to travel around, easier to keep in touch and spread propaganda uh, through the internet and so on. And so in the course of the 1990s, you get a, a growing kind of subset of the militant Islamist world that's 
sees itself as a kind of a global vanguard, where kind of the national origin doesn't matter, they're all in it together. And this is led by, by, by Al-Qaeda, which proposes a, a, a kind of a new strategy in the mid-1990s based on kind of direct confrontation with the West. But by uh, so 2000, early 2001, this kind of idea of confronting the West is quite controversial inside this uh, transnational party movement. Al-Qaeda is basically a minority voice. Most of these groups want to focus on their respective national struggles against their respective regimes. But the 9-11 attack very much changes this. It creates notoriety for Al-Qaeda, and it provokes uh, some initial steps by the US which kind of confirms what Al-Qaeda has been saying. You get the invasion of Afghanistan, and Guantanamo Bay, etc. So, but in 2002, there's already uh, kind of a nascent sort of what we call Al-Qaeda franchise, where groups that previously had, were only kind of peripherally connected, increasingly see themselves as part of this wider Al-Qaeda kind of thing. But it's still, as we shall see, it's still nothing like the, the, the wider franchise that we eventually develop. So what does the, the Iraq war do to to this jihadi um, movement and to the, to the Al-Qaeda franchise. There are multiple ways to kind of measure something like this. In, in, in general, and this is something Neil and I worked on, like how do you measure the terrorist activity? And in some sense, there are kind of two ideal type ways to do it. One is to measure operational activity, and the other is to measure the number of people in, involved. And if we look at, start by looking at operational activity, the, the numbers are very clear. So if you look, just start by looking at Iraq, we go from virtually zero activity in Iraq to, to mayhem. Now, there's a debate to be had about the kind of the coding of you know, terrorist incidents in Iraq during the war, but that's, that's something we detected during the QA. This is the, the, some of the best data that we, that, that we have. Here we're only looking at the, the internal Iraqi theater. When we look at the wider Muslim world, it's clear that, for one thing, what's going on in Iraq is huge. It's really out of proportion to almost anything else going on. So the, the Iraq attack activity is in the black on the left, and, and deaths from activity in Iraq is on the right. Notice how it's more pronounced in the, in the death count graph because, on average, attacks in Iraq are much more deadly. And this has a lot to do with the explosion in the use of suicide and bombings in, in Iraq. Which, again, probably has to do with the, with the theater being you know, relatively symmetric. And the rebel groups had relatively high operational freedom, more so than, let's say, a jihadi group operating in the suburbs of Cairo or another clandestine area. If you look closely, too, You'll see, and by the way, you go back a little bit to here, you see that there's a, the activity kind of dips a little bit or slows down towards the end of the, of the decade. This is probably surge related. And you can see this here too a little bit, like the, that the Iraq activity kind of slows down towards the end of the decade. But what then happens is that it's starting to really increase in, the, in Afghanistan and Pakistan. So just as the, the U.S. thinks it's got things under control in Iraq, it's losing control in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And it's also increasing slightly in, in other areas. 
Now, what about other parts of the world? We are dealing with transnational jihadism after all. Now, it's difficult to, to measure this because the, uh, the main data set for terrorist attacks, the GTD, doesn't code for perpetrator ideology. In the previous class, I just drew the assumption that you know, the majority of, kind of um, terrorist groups operating in the selected part of the Muslim world are Islamist motivated. It becomes harder in, if you move, for example, to the West, where there are a bunch of other groups of other ideologies operating at the same time. But there, are, there have been data gathering efforts uh, along the way that focus on to try to isolate different types of ideologies. So there, there are data sets now for far-right extremism, and there, has, there is one for, for jihadism as well. And it's maintained by Petr Nesser, my, my former colleague at FFI in Oslo. And this is the best, by far and away, I think, the best data we have on activity in, in Europe. And he records what we plots, basically, well-developed plans of attack, as well as actual attacks. Now, he, he, it's, it's important to, to also look at plots, because in the West, uh, security services are, are so effective that they kind of, they pre they're often able to, to derail or prevent plots that would otherwise have, have occurred. So we, there, we need to include them to get a sense of the activity level. And this graph shows you that in, in the, around right after the, the, the Iraq war, there is, this, there is an uptick in the plotting activity in, in, in Europe. But the graph belies, I think, the severity of the effect because almost all of these executed attacks here are, uh, cause very few casualties, zero or, or one casualties. There are only two attacks in the 2000s in Europe that cause major casualties. And it's the uh, Madrid bombing in March 2004, and it's the 7-7 bombing in London in 2005. They killed 194 and 52 people, respectively. And both of those attacks, I think, is quite clear now, are linked to, motivationally linked to, to Iraq. So in the case of the Madrid attack, we, we know that the planners timed the attack to, partly to, to punish the Spanish government was supporting the, the invasion of Iraq and to undermine the conservative government's chances of winning the, the, the election that will happen soon after. And in the case of the London bombings, we have, we have the um, testimonies of the perpetrators who speak at length about uh, Iraq as one of the justifications for, for what they're doing. Another type of activity, just to look at, are basically foreign fighter flows, which is when people don't carry out like a, a, a plot anything in their in their home country, but instead try and join the con conflict zone and fight there in, instead. It's, a, it's been a historically a very important form of militant Islamist activity, and this is this goes back a long time. Certainly, back to the 1980s with in Afghanistan, and since the 1980s, most conflicts in the Muslim world have attracted at least some foreign fighters. And by the time of the Iraq War, early, early 2000s, it had been a while since we had seen a very substantial foreign fighter mobilization, but Iraq became the, the biggest since uh, the Afghanistan War. And you had people mainly from, from Saudi, Libya, Morocco, yeah, Syria, Jordan joining. So, you know, three or four hundred probably from the West. The thing here on the right is from uh, something called the Sinjar document, where they captured, the US, US military captured basically personnel files from inside Al-Qaeda in Iraq on uh, volunteers that had recently arrived.
right from the wrong. Propaganda production is another type of activity that organizations uh, do. And those who have worked on <laughs> jihadism know that there is an enormous amount of written material in circulation, and there has been for, for a long time. And the, right about the time of the Iraq war is the, really the beginning of kind of the, you might call kind of the visual explosion in jihadi propaganda, where the, the, the number, length, sophistication, technical quality of videos really, really increases. There's a, so back in the mid-2000s, when I was working at FFI, we began trying to record, or to, to capture and, and catalog videos and we did what I think was our best effort to to log all of the major productions by jihadi group across, across groups across the world and the graph on the right shows you the number and kind of thematic distribution of this collection there are basically I think it's 850 something videos and by, when I say production I, I stress that because at any one time there'll be hundreds if not thousands of like short clips that are not technically speaking productions, there's been no editing or anything. These are kind of productions where a group or an, a kind of a media and entrepreneur has, has gone to some length to polish the thing. So, so, so the, the mid-2000s sees a, a massive uptick and much of this has, has, is linked to Iraq. Often we don't know where these videos were produced. But because they were disseminated primarily on jihadi forums, we can assume that they were viewed by people from many different countries. So this is not simply an kind of internal Iraqi tech. Another important propaganda product for jihadis are magazines, which they have been producing since the, since the 1980s. And I've, in recent years, tried to build, build what's called the, the Militant Islamist Magazine dataset. My ambition is to basically collect all jihadi magazines, and I think I'm nearly there. Uh, and um, if we look at the, the issues, all, all the jihadi magazines issued, published, issues are issued in the 2000s, from, from January 2000, uh, 2000 to December 2009, and plot them on a, on a, on a graph. You can clearly see that the number increases. And we can also see that the, the number of pages increases. So I just had to hear for, for this one way of visualizing it is like with with number of pages on the y-axis. The message is that, that, that there's a lot more magazine material in circulation from the mid and late 2000s onwards. Now we can also see that the Iraq-related or uh, the Iraq-produced magazines are not among the longest. They're not driving the the increase in you know, length and sophistication which nuances the picture uh, somewhat. Another way, as I mentioned, to, to look at you know, a movement's strength is to look at the number of people in, 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 involved. And here it becomes, it's, 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 this is a harder exercise, because it's, you, we rarely have good insight into the personnel files of, of, of clandestine groups, and, and if we do, there'll be rare, you know, occasional snapshots, snapshots not, not systematic, but we can start by looking at groups, like how, how, how many different groups are in, in operation at any one time. And one of the best sources is something called the, the Mapping Militants Project 
uh, at Stanford, uh, is um, Market Credentials Initiative, which is trying to kind of follow kind of mergers and splits and formations of, of building groups in around the world since the 2000s, early 2000s onward. And this is their kind of graph for Iraq and, and the surroundings. Now this is illegible, I realize that. <laughs> but I think you can discern <laughs> the, the general kind of slightly kind of pyramid-shaped uh, shape of this, of, the, of this graph, indicating that what we intuitively know from like following events in the late 2000s, which is that there's a proliferation of groups, a much more kind of complicated actor landscape from the mid 2000s onwards. This is another variant. This is looks at what they call the kind of the Al Qaeda cluster, which would include the emergence of Al Qaeda branch in, in Yemen, the joint, uh, the uh, inclusion of Algeria-based groups into the Al Qaeda franchise and Shabab and Somalia, etc. But the broader point here too is that the organizational universe is expanding in period. What about individuals? Is there any way we can get close to like count of people in these groups? Well, I, I think it's very hard for groups in the, in the region. There have been attempts at doing it, but I, I've never really trusted any of them. Uh, uh, so I won't venture to kind of uh, specification there, but we do have some interesting data from the West where numbers are smaller and the documentation is kind of thicker. And there's something called, uh, it's a really interesting project uh, run by Jutta Clausen at, at uh, Brandeis University. She and her team have been basically doing something that it's, I think, impossible to do in Europe for GDPR reasons, uh, which is to collect a, to maintain a database of, um, of individuals who have become, have been involved in terrorism investigations in the West, by which they mean Western Europe, North, North America, and, and Australia. It's for a total of a little over 7,000 people. And these are people who have been convicted, for the most part, uh, of their activity. And, and they, there's a, they include a variable for time of radicalization, which is, they probably draw from the kind of the, the articles of, of kind of the support material for each uh, person, where there will be, there will be either a news article about the person or maybe some court transcripts where the person describes in, in his or her own work when they kind of first got involved in, in the networks and that date is then kind of the, that for the first involvement. And this, th this curve simply shows like the number of people who reported a given year as their kind of entry year into the movement. It's also worth noting that numerous high-level intelligence officials have confirmed this, you know, without providing specific numbers. You know, 2010, for, for example, the former head of MI5 was crystal clear uh, in, in this assessment. Another window into kind of how many people were involved in this in the, in the 2000s are the so-called jihadi forums, which have been around since the early 2000s. And these are basically like uh, kind of an early form of Twitter where you could kind of start, uh, you can throw out a message, you can add content, videos of pictures and so on, and, and Jihadi Group used this for, to great effect. And for, for a long time I thought that much of this data was, was gone, uh, because I, mean, I and my colleagues were, were on these forums on a daily basis in the 2000s, because we didn't have the, kind of the, the expertise to systematically preserve the, the material. Recently, I discovered that there's a there was a team of 
computer scientists in Arizona that did and preserved this in a something called the, the Dark Web Forum portal, which has basically most of the main <coughs> Islamist forums in the 2000s preserved. Uh, we don't have the imagery, image material, media stuff on there, but we have the, the messages in text form and <coughs> the message data associated with the, with, with the messages. And it shows you what you would expect. We're kicking the dead horse here, but, but uh, we, we haven't really had this, you know, this type of empirical verification before. So on the left, you see that this, this is like the, over, the overall number of messages per month uh, in this kind of forum universe. And on the right is the distribution of uh, messages by kind of focus. And I'm just using a simple dictionary to code uh, you know, zero and one, whether a given message you know, talks about, mentions uh, Iraq-related words or, or Afghanistan-related words. So, or, so you see that Palestine is big in the early 2000s, second intifada and all that, but it, it's, it quickly fades into the background and superseded by Iraq. And this, by the way, this is, I should mention, this is just like one year before and after invasions. This is not the 2000s. This is March 2002, March 2004. So I'll stop there with the, with the kind of the, the time series graph, but I think it's pretty clear that the early intuitions were, were true, but we have better, better specification of the, the immediate sort of effect of the Iraq war on activity in the transnational jihadi domain. Now I haven't spoken at all about what happened after the 2000s the ISIS era, uh, which sort of begins with the Syria war and then these the rise of the caliphate, Islamic State's attack offensive in Europe, 2015-16, and so on. And that chapter in the in, you know, story of international jihadism is even more severe in the sense that I could show you more graphs, <laughs> but, uh, but the, the lines would just skyrocket to much higher levels than we saw in the 2000s for attacks, for foreign fighters, for propaganda, and all the other methods. But I think, so a key question then becomes, you know, was the Iraq war, in Iraq invasion 2003, was that a cause of the, the rise of ISIS? Was it a, were they linked? And I think that there are two, uh, I think we can, it's fairly clear that it is at least a, a kind of prerequisite. Because the, the networks, they're, where the seed of the, of, of the ISIS organizations were, were mostly networks that had formed during the Iraq war. And I think a key ingredient in the rise of the Islamic State was basically human resources, that you had a certain number of people, you know, former Ba'ath party technocrats who brought with them their know-how into movement Islamic networks and, and later into Islamic State. Now, there are lots of other factors, of course, in the ISIS story, but <clears throat> I think it's fair to say that the <coughs> caliphate wouldn't have taken the proportions it did if there hadn't been an earlier invasion of Iraq. Now, why uh, did the invasion have such a huge effect? I mentioned before already that far from all kind of ugly invasions translate into international terrorism. Why did this one have such a big effect? And I think, I can think of it's kind of four main reasons here, and you may add more in the Q&A, but 
the first and most obvious one is that the, the grievance factor, that the war harms people and causes a lot of uh, suffering in, in Iraq and, and that you get motivation to, to fight back, to resist the, the, the occupiers. This is sort of straightforward. But it can't be only that because it's, it's hard to make the case that, it's, that what happens is kind of an objective, you know, a reflection of the kind of the objective suffering on the ground, because the, the activity levels don't follow the patterns of objective suffering on the ground. But to, to have that grievance kind of inflicted uh, is, plays, plays a role. More important, I think, is what we might call kind of framed salience, which, by which I mean that the US, by invading Iraq, did exactly what Al-Qaeda and similar ideologues had predicted that it would. So <clears throat> this may be obvious to us now, but it wasn't then. I remember in the early 2000s being in many debates about this, about what, you know, what, what is kind of the, the heart of Al-Qaeda ideology. And you know, in all humility, I, I, I honestly, <laughs> and I, I think I have an on record with a lot of this, that I, I, I stressed very early on that kind of at the heart of, the, of, of this narrative is a victim narrative. It's what I, I, I call it, at stage, some stages I call it a kind of pan-Islamic nationalism. It's a, it's a sense of, sense that all Muslims are one people, that th this people is being systematically oppressed and humiliated and, and harmed by non-Muslims with Americans and, and Jews in the lead, and that we need, for this reason, we need to fight back. And that because this oppression is so severe, we can use whichever methods we like, including attacks on civilians anywhere. Now, this was not always accepted because there was a, kind of, there's an alternative uh, approach or perspective on nowadays, which just is more uh, kind of the, the, the domestic reform part or the, the, the fight against domestic repression and corruption and so on. But I think this frame salience uh, di dimension is, it was crucial to the effect of the Iraq war. Because if you look at the kind of geopolitical image in, of, of, the, of the Middle East in the 80s and 90s, the message that Al-Qaeda was putting, putting forward wasn't really that convincing, if you think about it. And Al-Qaeda and, and, and others were saying that the US had a long and very bloody history of intervention and kind of subversion in the Middle East. Now, <clears throat> that is true, but if you try to translate it into the kind of tangible metrics, it's not entirely clear. So, for example, you know, is it true that, that the U.S. always tried to harm Muslim interests in the Muslim world in the 80s and 90s? Well, Afghanistan war. The U.S. and the Western countries supported the Muslim, or the religious called Islamist side of that conflict with enormous resources. Similarly, a similar type of support which happened in Bosnia and so on. Now, I'm not trying to whitewash at all U.S. Middle East policy, but on metrics like military presence on the ground and uh, kind of side-taking in key conflicts in the area, uh, Al-Qaeda's argument was a little far-fetched. And this is clear if you look, and I forgot to include this slide, if you look at, you have data now on number of US troops in, you know, on, uh, deployed in various countries around the world. And the numbers in the, in, in the Muslim world in the 80s and 90s are very, very small. However, they skyrocketed <laughs> from 2003 onwards. I mean, uh, uh, to, to, you know, 
couple of, uh, between 100 and 200,000 on the ground. So, but what basically it makes a, a narrative that wasn't really true, makes it kind of uh, true. Third me mechanism, I think, is the opportunity cost, which is that it took away, the Iraq war took away resources and attention from, from US, US kind of security apparatus. They famously withdrew or, 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 or drew out resources from Afghanistan where they were hunting the perpetrators of 9-11 to manage the Iraq situation, which is probably the key reason why they, you have this sort of blossoming of activity in, in Afghanistan from that point. But the fourth and I think most important and perhaps least highlighted mechanism so far has been the role of kind of technology that it, that Iraq war happened at a time when new technologies were becoming available and which really which really um, helped rebel groups in disseminating propaganda. So these this sort of grievances there there locally can be projected to so many more people so uh, much faster than had been Now, I've probably spoken for too long already, but just briefly the counterfactual. If we, so here's a, here's a, just a, a map. I didn't make this. It's from Strat for, but I think it does a quite good job of showing kind of the jihadi universe sort of today, <coughs> 2018, but not very much has changed since then. And if we think about kind of back in what, what this landscape looked like in 2002, basically you had presence in broadly the same areas, but it was much, much smaller. And you did not have the Islamic State affiliated ones because obviously that kind of that movement didn't exist at the time. So kind of the, the kind of the main sort of uh, geographical centers of gravity for the, the Al Qaeda cluster in 2002 were Afghanistan and Pakistan, to some extent Algeria, in that the GSPC was still very quite quite active and gravitating into the Al Qaeda cluster. But then you really just have clandestine groups in most other other places. Now, for, for all of these areas, of course, there are local dynamics that might well have produced uh, situations conducive to like local Islamist militias. Anyway, but if you if you go back, for example, also to look at just look at the the activity levels, the the, the grey material in the on these graphs, it's very low, it's quite stable. So I think the uh, fun to, to discuss this counterfactual part uh, together after uh, in, in, in a second when I'm done. I just want to f finish uh, on some kind of counter arguments that one might think about for, for you know, against this the view that Iraq war is responsible for kind of <laughs> almost everything about jihadism is concerned. So <coughs> one would consist, I suppose, of saying that the growth of jihadism was overdetermined, that because you had this they had this sort of well-polished victim narrative, and the world was becoming kind of more globalized. There would be, it would always be, it would always be possible to point to something that you know the U.S. or the Western country had done that was bad, that was support their, their, their argument and so on. But the, te but the technology was, was this dissemination technology arrived independently of the invasion would have empowered other groups anyway, and that for and that. The Arab Spring and the Syrian War in illustrated there were there were tensions in the region that were kind of waiting to kind of erupt, and 
one could make the case that something like a stereotype civil war could have happened later on to become a hotspot for, for jihadi activities, even without an, an Iraq invasion. Another uh, counter-argument would be to say that, yeah, we've got a lot of jihad, sort of jihadism, but we, at least we stopped some kind of collusion between uh, Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein, or, 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 or a state actor. Or to say that a Middle East without an Iraq invasion would be uh, a Middle East with kind of weaker Western, weaker US kind of penetration, fewer sensors on the ground. The US would have been more dependent on local regimes for information about Al-Qaeda and other, and other threats. And sometimes they might not have gotten it. And, that, and this might have created some kind of a, a dynamic which could have been, been, been more, more dangerous than, than what the kind of deeply kind of most like occupation type presence that they, they got with the, 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 the Iraq war. And the third, perhaps uh, most controversial, I think quite interesting uh, suggestion is just to say that, and it's kind of linked to the first one, that the, the growth of jihadism was, uh, was overdetermined, is to say that the kind of the, the, the big kind of turnaround in especially kind of local political sentiment in the Muslim world towards militant Islamism and jihadism in particular, the big turnaround was the Islamic State phenomenon and the kind of the, 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 the popular backlash against the, the violence deployed by Islamic State. And the case can, can perhaps be made that without like a, a, a development of Islamic State, you'd have, you'd have had a sort of simmering kind of low-level support for uh, Al-Qaeda type groups uh, in the area for, for quite a long time. But I'm, I think, increasingly of the view that, that there has been really, there really has been a kind of ISIS effect on the support, not just for jihadism, but for political Islam in general. Now, <coughs> to, but to, to go from there to say that, well, um, by invading Iraq, we kind of precipitated this cathartic moment that we needed, I think is, a, is a very much a, a, a stretch. But I think it's, it's, it's interesting to, to think about these and in any case, I mean, it's, it's, these are intellectual exercises, and we shouldn't, I think, forget the, this enormous amount of humanitarian and, and um, economic impact that we've had on the region. So I'll just uh, stop there. Thank you. Thank you so much, sure there are uh, lots of questions. Apparently it's tradition that I have to ask the first question, so let me, let me abuse that prerogative. Let me push you on a couple of things. So I, I don't know, for those of you, the students of my course who read about Middle East political science, I set Thomas's work, but I also set a book that recently came out by Nelly Lahoud that Thomas actually encouraged me to read, which is a kind of real breakdown of what happens to Al-Qaeda after 9-11 based on the documents that are recovered from Abbottabad after... Navy SEAL Team 6, I want to say, Raid the Compound. And the story that you get from that book, from the kind of primary source material, is that Al-Qaeda, post 9-11, is an extremely weak organization. Materially, in terms of personnel, in terms of the resources that it can bring to bear. And I wonder then, in this story, who is coordinating, who is taking advantage of the invasion of Iraq? Who is coordinating this are these new people who are being recruited, or are these, you know, when you talk about this kind of franchising system, is this garden variety Islamists rebranding themselves to take advantage of it, or 
yeah, what is the kind of the material basis of it? A second question that I just wanted to push you on, a lot of the time series plots that you showed, looking at those graphs, the discontinuity of 2003 is not always clear. A lot of the time, it's actually trending upwards beforehand. And I wondered just to think counterfactually whether what happens in Iraq in 2003 is really accelerating a tendency that you actually see beforehand. Because just looking at a lot of the trends and a lot of the plots, if you look at the, the Brandeis data, if you look at the message forums, if you look at media production, it's going that way anyway. And then Iraq <coughs> happens and it just continues to accelerate upwards. So I wonder counterfactually what would have happened then, given that tendency. Hmm. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, great questions. So I don't think we really know the material basis of the Al-Qaeda franchise. is Because I think we're dealing with something very messy that not even the key actors understood. And so at some level we're dealing, you know, we're talking about individuals, people that Nelly describes very, very well in, in, in her book, you know, people, you know, a family, you know, going about their kind of business and, and thinking about how to continue the jihad, you know, from their hideout and so on. And you're, you also have specific leaders that we now know things about, but, but there's also, you know, there's, a, there's an acceleration in recruitment that's so high that clearly the key, you know, key leaders cannot have known all of these, all of these individuals. And I think in, in a lot of cases, and you see this also if you process trace the plots, that only a small minority of plots in the West and elsewhere are instigated by the head of organizations. A lot of these plots are, are kind of bottom-up initiatives with new, new young people who have essentially watched videos online and together with their mates, and 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 been become you know very wound up, wound up and angry about what's going on, and wanting wanting to do something. And that's that, that's the situation in a lot of in a lot of cases. I mean, this question of how much coordination is there in the Al Qaeda movement? I mean, it's been heavily debated since the beginning. But some of you may have heard about the the polemic between Bruce Hoffman and, and, and Mark Sageman about you know, related matters. And yeah, so the, I think it's a, it's a debate that can't really be adjudicated. There's a mixture of both. And I can't see a situation where we'll get data that's good enough that enable us to, to really adjudicate it. But I think if, if in a sentence, this was an uncoordinated movement, really whipped up largely by <coughs> technological process. So for some of the graphs, you know, I think I have to go more deeply into the data and see where is the increase happening and who is behind it. But in the case of the Iraq invasion, we have to bear in mind that there was, that there was a long run-up to it. That's one thing. So, so there was talk about an invasion for at least six months before, beforehand. So, and you see this on the, on the forums, for example, they're talking about it. The other thing to bear in mind is that you, you have Palestinian intifada. And the Chechen, Chechenia war is still fresh in people's minds. And both of these two issues have, have been major kind of symbols of, uh, maybe sort of grievous symbols in this sort of jihadi victim narrative that I talked about. So that, so that may also have been behind some of that activity in the early 2000s. But both of those conflicts, you know, they petered out. And I think, you know, a strong case can be made that you know, they would have petered out even further. And so you, you would have seen a decrease to, you know, to sort of around you know, 1999, 2000 levels later. But I obviously guess it. Great, thanks. Can we thank our speaker, Thomas Agamon? Mm -hmm.